2: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the August 31st, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we look at two movies available online and meet the queen of lesbian pulp, Anne Bannon. But first... Since September 15th to October 15th is National Hispanic American Heritage Month, what better reason to start off this week's show with an Encore Gaytino
3: Report. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero. Or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. Tonight's guest, a pistol. Sandra Valls is a stand-up comic you may have caught on Showtime's The Latin Divas of Comedy, Nickelodeon's Nick Mom Night Out, or one night stand-up on Logo. Or really at any top comedy club anywhere in the country. An actor, singer and writer that plays a mean piano. Sandra is also a self-proclaimed badass. I suspect that may be her proudest accomplishment. I'm a little scared, but... Hello, Sandra.
4: Dan. I can't roll my R's. But I'm good with my tongue anyway, so... Oh, my God. Can we be blue in this program? Can we...
3: How blue do you want to get? I don't know. Why am I thinking of that famous Bet Davis quote from All About Eve? Fasten your seat belts. It's It's going to be a bumpy bumpy night. Yeah, (laughs) bumpy night
4: or bumpy ride. Whatever you want. Whatever bumps.
3: But not too blue.
4: (laughs) Not too blue. Yes.
3: Let me ask you: Does being a badass take a lot of work, or does it come like really naturally to you?
4: That's just who I am. Anyone who's an activist, anyone who stands up for their rights, anyone who's like no. You're not going to suppress me or make me shrink. I think they're a badass.
3: You know what? It's the same like diva. Diva is not a bad thing. It Mm-mm. just means you want things done well and professionally. And if that makes you a diva, then let's all salute divas.
4: I salute the divas. The <laughs> badass divas.
3: <laughs> you have a great comedy career going in for a good many years now. But you came to it by accident, right?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I was a musician. I still am. And I'm you know a singer. I was in a band. This was in Boston years ago. And I was seeing somebody and all her tribe of people were like, you're just so funny. And of course, I'm funny. I'm the class clown, whatever. But I'm like, no, I'm a lead singer. I'm an actor. No, you're so funny. You should be a comic. And I'm like, "Mm, whatever. So she signs me up for comedy classes at a local college, like adult comedy classes. And in the process, we were having issues. And so we were going to couples therapy, of course, because we're lesbians. (laughs) In the middle of it all, she's like, I'm done. This is not working. Then she goes, well, what about the comedy class? Are you still going? I said, I don't want to go. Who wants to laugh? I was just dumped. And so then my best friend Chris was like, girl, you should go to make friends. She took all your friends. (laughs) (gasps) Lesbians choose sides. I didn't do anything. Yeah, all her friends chose her. And then I ended up with like only two people. I'm like, gee, I went to make friends. And you did. And I made a lot of friends and I made a career out of
3: it. (laughs) You started the class because everyone said, you were so funny, you were so funny. Were you a funny kid growing up in Laredo, Texas? I mean, you got to be something in Laredo, Texas.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I was. I was funny. I really loved making my parents laugh. My dad's a great storyteller, and he would make other people laugh. And I was just silly. And I always felt different. It's so cliche for a lesbian, gay child to be like, I feel different. But I did feel different, and so... My icebreaker or my way of fitting in was to make people laugh. I loved to laugh, and so I made other people laugh. I was silly. I talked way too much. I was most humorous in high school, and I was always voted funny, funny, funny. But I never thought of it as a career. Mm -hmm. I thought I'll just be a comedic actor.
3: Do you find yourself limited to LGBTQ nights at comedy clubs or Latino nights at comedy clubs? Do you find
4: yourself limited to that genre? Well, I don't limit myself. They limit you. People Limit you promoters limit you, they like boxes. They really love like Latino night, like you said, or LGBTQ night, or women's night, or something like that. I get in where I fit in. So for me, you know, I don't feel limited. Funny is funny. The audiences that laugh the loudest at different kind of jokes are straight people, and I, for me, I love LGBTQ rooms because I don't have to explain the joke. Sure, I can just sit and talk about our idiosyncrasies and or latinos i could spanglish as much as i want when i have straight audiences who aren't latino (laughs) it's a different take on the joke because we Mm -hmm. have to explain and or they find it like for example i have this one joke that i say for the mexican a sheet is like the cloak of invisibility like you know we put sheets on things we don't have storage units we have like sabanas like we, we just cover it up with a sheet and it doesn't exist Well, for Latinos, we laugh in a different, familiar way, but for non-Latinos, they crack up completely differently. So I don't limit myself. However, if your niche is the LGBTQ community or women or Latinos, yeah, you go with that. Is that who's responding to you? Yeah, of course. And little by little, you become universal,
3: and the laughs are different. In my solo show, Gay Tino, it's very different if I have a heavily Latino audience mm-hmm. or heavily gay or when I did it at the Kirk Douglas, mostly older white folk.
5: Mm-hmm. The laughs
3: are different. It doesn't mean you change your act or change the things, but it is a different energy. It's
4: a different energy. The energy is different. When I'm among my LGBTQ people, it is a validation of who we are. It is a pride thing like, now let's get out there and... Kick some ass and still stand proud in who we are. So that is how I basically end my show. And Or they feel like, yay, somebody gets me, which is awesome. When I do straight crowds, it's an educational thing. Like, here's how gay people are. Here's how I am. Or here's what I feel gay and straight have funny about them. And so they leave a little bit changed, hopefully. Like, oh, I never knew that about the LGBT community. So it's kind of the healing profession that I'm in. I believe that comedians are healers. Laughter heals. I think it's a release. I think it's so important to laugh and laugh at ourselves and with ourselves. If I can add a little bit of levity to your day and also have a message while you're laughing, insert a message of encouragement, of enlightenment, of empowerment, then I did my job. I think that's a beautiful thing. And we don't always start out that way. We start out as comics. I just want to be funny, whatever. And, and I'll just say things and and you find your voice. And as we get older, (laughs) as you and I both know, we mature. Crap starts happening to us in our life. And then as a comic, you are a social commentator. And so you start to observe what makes me happy, what makes me feel good. I no longer want to feel dramatic and like crappy, you know. I want to feel good and and grow. And so a lot of things have happened in the world (laughs) and in our own lives that I feel a responsibility with that microphone. I feel a responsibility to empower people and to make them feel good and to heal their spirit. When you laugh and when you can look at your life sort of outside of yourself and try to make it better or try to not get so caught up in your darkness, then I did some spiritual healing.
3: This is Dan Guerrero with the Tino Report, and I'm talking to funny lady Sandra
4: Valls. When somebody asks me, what's your comedy about? I say my life, and they're like, is it mostly gay? Well, I'm a Mexican gay person, so <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's things that I find funny, including my girlfriend or my ex-relationship where I had kids, so I talked a lot about kids. I find them really crazy. So I talked about that.
3: Universal theme.
4: Well, whatever you're living, if you're commenting on your own life, that's what it is. And so I just feel, not everyone feels this, I feel I have a responsibility in that microphone, especially as I get older, to at least leave them a little happier than they were before. And if I made you laugh, I did my job.
3: And I feel as a Latino, we also have a responsibility to get our stories out there, to empower. That is responsibility.
4: Yes. Again, I don't think we have enough positive and inclusive representation in our LGBTQ community or Latino or women. (laughs) You know, so I come out like three times or ageism even. I'm 52. And people are like, why do you go around saying you're Because it's empowering. People feel that people in their 50s have to look or act a certain way. Look at me. I don't think I look whatever 50 is or act or feel. Well, I feel and last night I stayed up too late. So, yeah. I can't party anymore like I used to. But it's important to say we each can create our own life. We can create whatever we want out of ourselves. And you can't tell me who I am. And it's been a battle, and you know this, to be a strong, powerful gay person, Latina, woman. It's a challenge, unfortunately. You know, when I first moved to L.A. and I was talking about being Mexican, somebody actually said, don't tell people that you're Mexican, because I'm very pale. Mm-hmm. No, no, don't say that, because you know. I was like, well, I know, what do you mean? I know? And don't say you're gay. This was in 2001. Yeah. So that made me want to say it more. <laughs> that I'm Mexican and gay.
3: Also, you're a priestess. Tell me about that.
4: I'm an Ifa priestess. It's a nature-based African religion. The only thing you can compare it to is a Native American religion, but it's vastly different. It deals with energies in the world, which some people call deities. So, for example, Yemaya, Oshun, Shango. These are all parts of ourselves, but these are all energies in the world. The Oshun is the energy of love and unconditional love and abundance and joy. And Yemaya is the mother and the rebirth energy, and she's found in the ocean. And Oshun's found in a river and that kind of thing. So it's very intricate to get into. It's Orisha worship. Orisha, which means the energies of the world. Uh, So anyway, I went through a uh, transformation, a spiritual cleansing, a year of white where I couldn't touch or hug anyone and couldn't wear any other colors and anything. But it was life-changing because I'm very intuitive. I'm sort of psychic, and I have now embraced that I'm a healer. We all are, but I didn't want to embrace that. I got a message when I was praying one day, and it said, take your place at the table, Toma tu lugar. What is that? What do you mean? No, it's a lot of responsibility. But a spiritual warrior is not for the weak and faint of heart. And it's a calling that, oh, it's annoying. It's really hard. But I believe that we're all here on earth for a reason and a mission. And when you step into that, and I just happen to be a comedian. I mean, you could be a spiritual warrior and be a mother. And I believe they all are. And they should be. Mm -hmm. Or a bus driver or whatever. But how I'm doing it how you are healing the world, how I am, is with my comedy, with my message. And so my comedy changed a little, actually a lot. I still think funny is funny. I still, I can still bitch about the damn mockingbird that won't shut up because I can't sleep all night or all morning. I could still be that. I'm a human. But there is a everything's going to be okay because I say it so. You create your own reality. You create your own life. And you can choose To look at the crap in life or look at the miracles in life. And every day is that choice. You know this. You wake up some days like, oh, there's nothing I could choose that's, And then you go, okay, I'm grateful for. The other day I ate too much and I felt like crap. But I went, you know what? Thank you so much that I have enough food that I ate too much, actually. There was a time in my life where I didn't eat enough because I was struggling, you know, that I can walk. That I have a bed, that I have water. Just little things like that that we take for granted. But when you count your blessings, and I'm not saying that I am always have the best attitude because I really don't. But I struggle and I really challenge myself to see the good in people. I love this quote that says, don't treat people as bad as they are. Treat them as good as you are. And this other quote says, you want to be a badass? Be kind to everyone. Dot, dot, dot everyone that was always <laughs> like oh so often we want to be encompassed by darkness and this one and uh oh.
3: it sounds corny when they say choose to be happy but it's really true and choose to be grateful i go to gelson's a block from where i live and i see the produce and i go oh my god there are places in this country they would drop dead if they saw that they don't have a scrap and we don't think anything of it nine kinds of apples 20 kinds of grapes we have to be grateful we have so much and it's harder today to be grateful because there's so much evil going on but you really can't get buried in that i have friends who are literally immobilized you know they are by what's going on and that's the last thing we need to do
4: i believe there's more good people in the world than bad people and i don't even believe there's bad people they're just lost and broken I believe that good people should rise up in the multitudes. Your friends can slowly rise up and change the world with your positive energy. And I know some people listening might be like, oh, that one. She sounds all hoity-toity, Oprah, (laughs) Vonsant, whatever. No, I'm not saying that. And I'm not invalidating anyone who's going through a tough-ass time that's just really hard and F everyone. I totally get that I've been there.
3: But it is difficult, what you say, I totally agree with. But, you know, the Women's March, we all went out there. Look at that. No one gave a rat's ass. What did Did, it do? Did no
4: one give a rat's ass? I don't know. Did things change? I think people change on a fundamental, personal level. It might not have changed a bill right away or government, but in Buddhism we say... One human revolution in one person can transform the world. One person. I agree. Because now you come and change him and you change her and you smile at this one to ripple effect. Then they might treat their partners better or their co workers better. And slowly but surely, you spread goodness. So, yes, these women did change each other. I did feel more empowered to go out and keep changing the audience, keep healing the audiences, keep making them understand. That there's good in the world.
3: I agree. Before you go, how about tell us your website?
4: Welovesandra.com.
3: And you know what? We do. Thank you. <laughs> gracias, Sandra. Thanks for being here today. And gracias, listeners. I'm Dan Guerrero. And I've been talking with singer, funny lady, high priestess, and badass, Sandra Vols. Thanks for tuning in to The Gaytino Report. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud.
2: More information on Dan Guerrero can be found at gaytino.com. gaytino.com.
5: Stick around, we'll be right back. Gay activist Morty Manford, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in 1950, Morty Manford was a lifelong New Yorker who witnessed the Stonewall Riots in 1969. From that day forward, he was on a mission, equal rights for gays. During a protest in 1972, he was thrown down an escalator and beaten up as the police stood idly by. His parents, Gene and Jules Manford, saw the whole thing on their local newscast, turning them into instant activists. Together with Morty, they appeared on radio and TV, bringing attention to the problem of gay bashing and police harassment. Gene marched with Morty in New York's Pride Parade in 1972 with a sign that read, Parents of Gays, Unite in Support of Our Children. She later helped form the support group PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Corey Rainier.
6: Hi, I'm Larry and I'm Gary. You might know us as the Lane Twins. Whether you live in Hollywood or Dollywood. Knowledge is power, so it's a good thing you're listening to IMRU, the longest-running LGBT radio news magazine in the country.
2: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor-Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. In these shut-in times, streaming queer films online, can keep you from hitting on the mail carrier. And tonight, we celebrate two. The first of which is Capote. In the 2005 film Capote, reading of the murder of a Kansas family, New York City novelist Truman Capote decides to cover the story himself and travels to the small town with his childhood friend, aspiring novelist, Harper Lee. When Perry Smith and Dick Hickok are arrested and charged, Capote forms an emotional bond with Smith during his jailhouse interviews despite the young criminal's apparent guilt. Steve Pride filed this report. Although it takes place during a single period in Truman Capote's biography,
7: the five and a half years during which he researched and wrote his 1966 classic, In Cold Blood, the film Capote delivers the sum of the man.
1: On the night of November 14th, two men broke into a quiet farmhouse in Kansas and murdered an entire family. And why did they do that? Two worlds exist in this country. The quiet, conservative life and the life of those two men. With the underbelly, the criminally violent. And those worlds converged that bloody night.
7: In this dazzling film, Philip Seymour Hoffman is amazing in the title role. But the prolific character actor does not immediately spring to mind when you think of Truman Capote. And he agrees.
8: They came to, to my house with the script, Danny and Bennett, who I've known since I was in high school. I didn't go to high school with them, but I met them in the summer program then. And before that time, I'd never thought about it at all. I mean, literally, I, I probably was thinking about uh, napping or something. And um, and they came to my house and, and said, hey, we have a script. Do you want to play and Capote? And I was like, I thought, first of all, that's absurd. And it really was. It was kind of like, well, that doesn't really I mean, that was my reaction. It wasn't like, oh, yay, I get to, you know, it was like, what do you you mean? You know, because of my image of Truman Capote in my head didn't really fit me.
7: Like many of us, Hoffman's image of Truman Capote was based on his latter years, long after the writing stopped and he slid into self-parody on the talk show circuit.
8: Dick Cavett, Johnny Carson. I watched these when I was a child. I'm sure everyone else did. I don't... I didn't see my. I didn't immediately jump to that image of Truman and me going together. It just didn't. It did, It wasn't the first thing that made me go like, "Ah, oh, yeah, we're,
1: we're like brothers." Yeah, I've decided on a title for my book. I think you like it. It's very masculine. It's in cold blood. Isn't that
8: good? I was aware of what he had written, what he was famous for, but. This is the journey, right? So that's what I'm aware of at first is that whole character, that whole personality, that raconteur that entertained us and, you know, made us unnerved and, and you know, the, the self destructive side, the part of his life. And um, so when I read the screenplay, that was when I was like, oh, okay, I see what he's getting at. And then I read the biography, which was. If you haven't read it, read it. It's a great read. I mean, it's, it's kind of addictive. And uh, I remember I couldn't put it down. It's very long and you just can't stop reading it. And, um, and then I started to see what they were getting at. you know what I mean? And I started seeing, oh, okay, I see maybe why. Maybe they're asking me. And, but still, I was, I was uh, petrified of having to do all the work that it would take to play him because it was still such a, a difference, such a kind of a chasm between us in many ways.
7: At the heart of this film is the relationship that formed between Truman Capote and one of the killers, Perry Smith. Thank you.
1: Uh, It's as much for me as for anyone. I couldn't bear the thought of losing you so soon. We're going to be able to use your book for our case. You're right, we never got to raise an insanity plea. You wrote how terrible the lawyers was. I, I haven't written a word yet. What have you been doing? Research. Talking to you.
8: Of course, I think he was obsessed. I think he was fascinated. It was the beginning of the end. You know, he saw Perry Smith and he was like, oh, my God, who is that? I need that. I want that. I want to eat that. Do you know what I mean? And and, and it's like for all the reasons. So, like, you know, attraction and love are, of course, going to come out of that or part of that, byproduct of that. But, like Bennett said, I don't know if you write the press conference, what Bennett said about the idea of them, you know, that it was some sexual uh, relationship. I think is to me, my answer to that is kind of like, I don't think it happened. I don't think it, but even if it did, it's not something that I think is really important. To, I think it would dilute the actual real tragedy that happened here, which happens to do with the end of a, a writer's like you know. So, uh, so, uh, so, yes, but of course, I think i think i- like I think you want to eat him, I mean, I think it was like if he could have just digested this guy, he you know he he would have
7: the film presents Truman Capote, warts, and all. he bonded with the killers, he helped them find lawyers for their appeals and visited them in prison, but he needed their execution, he needed an ending for his book, and this conflict is so brilliantly portrayed by Philip Seymour Hoffman that it made my skin crawl.
1: then we exacerbate. Problem. They only heighten or intensify it. Maybe we can get them straight on the program. I know what exacerbate means. Okay, well, just there, 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 there's not a word or a sentence or a concept that you can illuminate for me. There is one singular reason I keep coming here. Truly. On November 14th, 1959. Three years ago. Three years. Mm-hmm. And that, that's all I want to hear from you.
7: Truman Capote was a raconteur. He was the life of the party, and as portrayed in the film, this seems almost as important to him as his work, as his writing.
8: What life was he choosing? I think he was choosing acceptance.
7: Actor Philip Seymour Hoffman.
8: And what part of society that, what meaning, like he liked to hang out with a high society, but some of the men he ended up dating were from a whole different class level. You know what I mean? It's like where he wanted acceptance was really anybody's guess you know what i mean and i I stand by that i don't think he was just looking for one thing i think he was looking for something from a lot of different people in a lot of different areas because i think his need was so great you know um so i don't you know i'm wary of saying that Truman Capote sat there and was like consciously going i That's, you know, I think he wanted to be a part of that world. He became a part of it. I think he wanted also to be a part of this world, and he became a part of it. I think when he chose to be a part of something, he made it happen.
1: Since I was a child, folks have thought they had me pig because of the way I talk. They're always wrong.
8: My job wasn't to do a Saturday Night Live sketch or a caricature. My job was to tell a story. In a a very honest, human way. My job was first and foremost to tell a story. My job, even the primary aspect wasn't even to play him correctly, it was to tell this story. And one of the aspects in Givens to tell this story was to get a sense of him as honestly and as soulfully as possible so that you would forget about the image that I had when they offered me the role. Do you see what I'm saying? You would forget the... Rack on tour, personality, talk show, Saturday Night Live, sketch guy—you would see the prolific, intelligent, witty, sharp, ambitious, duplicitous writer of a generation. I needed to embody that thing, and that's what made me want to do it. Because I said, if you're telling that story, I want to be a part of it.
7: Prior to the release of *In Cold Blood*, Truman Capote was a prolific writer. His work included the lyrics for the Broadway musical House of Flowers, the screenplay for the Humphrey Bogart film Beat the Devil, the novel Other Voices, Other Rooms, and the novella Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was turned into a classic film with Audrey Hepburn. After the publication of In Cold Blood, perhaps his greatest work, Capote never finished another book or play. This has been a conversation with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Capote was directed by Bennett Miller based on the book Capote by Gerald Clark with a screenplay by Judging Amy actor Dan Futterman. It also stars Catherine Kinnear and is a Sony Pictures Classic release. For more information on Capote or other films of gay interest, visit prideonscreen.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
2: is available to rent on Amazon Prime and watch free on the Tubi app. Greg Araki turned Scott Himes' 2004 novel, Mysterious Skin, into a film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Steve Pride talks to the guilty parties.
7: It's been five years since the last Greg Araki movie, and it's been worth the wait. His new film, Mysterious Skin, is about pedophilia, hustlers, aliens, sadists, and the dark side of childhood. It's based on the Scott Heim novel of the same name.
9: Summer, I was eight years old. Five hours disappeared from my life. Five
0: hours. Lost. Gone without a trace. Hello, this is Greg Araki, director of the film Mysterious Skin. I read the book in 1995 when it was first published, and it just had such a huge impact on me. I just loved it. I mean, I just felt like it was such an important story, but such a... heartfelt story and so sincere and just so emotional it really just kind of devastated me when I read it and it stayed with me for years afterwards and so I knew that if I ever did make a film out of a book this would be the book that I would want to do.
7: The film Mysterious Skin is set in the small town of Hutchinson Kansas. It's about a troubled eight-year-old named Brian Lackey who believes he may have been the victim of an alien abduction during a five-hour mental blackout. It's about another 8-year-old named Neil McCormick, who has found what he perceives to be love with his Little League baseball coach. Ten years later, Neil is a teenage hustler obsessed with sex with older men. And Brian is still obsessed with solving the riddles of his missing time. Inevitably, these two very different boys must come together to exorcise their collective demons the film adheres unflinchingly to the novel's take
6: on the burgeoning sexuality of a gay kid and its controversial depiction of child abuse. Hello, this is Scott Heim, author of Mysterious Skin. When I was writing the book early on, that was the first thing that I realized, okay, this is kind of the thorny thing here. And it was also, I think, something that people don't really want to talk about. Or You know, there's a lot of books about molestation or child abuse, but it's just it's one thing that people kind of shy away from. And I, I think... The, the danger or maybe the thing that people find so thorny about it is I think people think that if you are showing a child as sexualized and therefore, in the case of the character here, thinking that he that it's a love experience or that there's some sort of enjoyment in there, that you're condoning the experience or condoning abuse or molestation. And I'm certainly not doing that at all. I just wanted to show that these situations are never black and white. There's always like various shifting shades of gray, not only with the molester, but with the victim as well. And certainly part of it's based in some ways on the way I was when I was that age. I, I remember being very sort of sexual when I was eight years old. And, you know, I think different children are react very different ways, but you know, the majority of children have horrible and horrifying experiences when these things sort of things happen. But I think, you know, with the character of Neil, I wanted to show that here's a boy who as a very sexual mother who sort of treats him almost more like a peer than as a son in some ways you know he's seen her actually having sex he's seen her play girls under her bed so you know he's very sort of exposed to sexuality at a very early age and i think in some ways the molester kind of sees that and runs with it you know here's a boy that i could actually kind of you know get away with what i want to do in a way and yeah i think i think that's maybe the major thing in the story that disturbs people cuz they aren't really sure if there's any sort of political assignment. I think a lot of people go into a book or a film expecting to be sort of told what the politics are or how to feel or what to believe, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to sort of make the reader judge for themselves.
5: You're the only mm-hmm. one I ever told. I know. I never told Eric. I am told my mom. And some people might think it's terrible or whatever, but what happened that summer, was a huge part of me. You no know, one ever made me feel that way
1: for four since. Uh, I was
5: special.
0: You know. Neil, you were eight years old.
5: I mean, he really loved me. I mean there were other kids sometimes, but I was his prize.
1: I was his one true thing.
7: Actor Joseph Gordon Levitt grew up doing sitcoms and is best known to American audiences as Tommy Solomon on Third Rock from the Sun. But as Neil McCormick, Levitt makes us forget everything that came before. His performance is raw, sensuous,
5: and drips with sexuality. My name is Joseph Gordon Levitt. It wasn't difficult to play a, a sensual, out there, dark character. And I think that's largely due to a Greg. He just was able to make me feel comfortable. And all of the sensuality and all of the darkness in the movie is there to serve the greater story. And that's. That's what it's about. There's, you know, there's a lot of sexy scenes in the movie, but they're part of the story. They're based in emotion. They're part of the character's progression from one place to another. It's not just like, ah, let's throw in a sex scene, people. You know, That'll get some butts in the seats. So I, I never did feel uncomfortable. I felt proud to be doing something so true that people were doing for all the right reasons. No one was there for the money. No one was there because someone else was telling them to be there. Everyone was there because they believed in it. And um Greg number one, and, and you know the rest of us followed him, and uh, so I was just proud
7: mysterious skin is a complex film its characters difficult to label with divergent reactions to their childhood trauma filmmaker Greg Araki is also hard to label once hailed as the father of queer new wave cinema in the 1990s he has since dated women these days he has a boyfriend but don't ask him if he's bisexual
0: as a filmmaker and as a person I just don't really like to be labeled I don't really like to be categorized in any way I just think of myself as a person and also as a filmmaker. And I don't really think of myself as a gay filmmaker or a straight filmmaker or punk rock filmmaker, or I just really think of myself as a filmmaker with a personality, sexual identity, various interests, you know, really impacted by, by music and music culture. And so I sort of resist being pigeonholed in any kind of way. And I know that, um, the media in particular has a tendency, like they want to put you in a neat category, and my life has always been such that I don't really fit in neat categories, and that's sort of my category is doesn't fit in any category, (laughs) which is sort of um, the way I I like it. You know, I don't like to be stuck in a drawer somewhere.
7: This has been a conversation with writer-director Greg Araki, actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and author Scott Heim. The film also stars Brady Corbett as Brian, Elizabeth Shue as Neil's mom, with Jeffrey Lycan and Michelle Trachtenberg as Neil's friends Eric and Wendy. Mysterious Skin is from TLA Releasing and Tartan Films. For more information on this and other LGBT films, point your internet browser to prideonscreen.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
2: Mysterious Skin streams on Sundance Now via Amazon Prime. And a little-known fact, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's parents met working at KPFK-FM. Stick around. We'll be right back.
10: PFLAG founder Gene Manford remembered. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Jean Manford, a champion to the LGBT community and founder of the National Support Group Parents, Families and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, or PFLAG, died on January 7, 2013 in her home in Dale City, California. She was 92. In April 1972, Jean wrote a letter to the New York Post after her son, the late Morty Manford, was beaten at a gay rights protest in New York. In part it said, I have a gay son and I love him. Soon after, she marched alongside her son in the Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, holding a sign that read, Parents of Gays, unite in support of our children. The crowd embraced her. Within the year, she'd formed the Parent Support Group in New York City, which blossomed into PFLAG. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Richmond City Councilman Charles Samuels.
11: This is Judy Shepard, and you are listening to I Am R U. I am R U.
2: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to I M R U Radio. In the late 1950s and early 60s, Ann Bannon wrote six lesbian pulp fiction novels known as the Bebo Brinker Chronicles. The book's enduring popularity and impact on lesbian identity has earned her the title Queen of Lesbian Pulp Fiction. Steve Pride sat down with the Queen and files this report.
7: Anne Bannon is the pen name of the most popular writer of iconic lesbian pulp novels, of the late 1950s and early 60s. Her six books were Odd Girl Out, I Am Woman, Women in the Shadows, Journey to a Woman, The Marriage, and Bebo Brinker. According to the Bloomsbury Guide to Women's Literature, Bannon's character Bebo Brinker has come to personify the 1950s bar butch and her ongoing search for true love. But the real life Anne Wilde was a wife and mother when she wrote these books. And take me back 50 plus years. How did Ann Wilde become Ann Bannon?
11: Well, it was clear to me and reinforced by my very nervous husband that there was no way I could put my actual name on the front of one of those wild and (laughs) woolly paperback covers. It would end up for sure across the nearly bare bosom of a very seductive lady. And he said, I never want to see that. So I had to find a pen name. It was partly that, and it was partly the problem of sheer terror at being found out. So I went through all kinds of names, and finally one evening my husband had brought home a list of prospective customers. He was a salesman at the time, and on the list was the name Bannon. And I thought, gee, that's nice. And it puts me up at the front of the alphabet, so it had everything to recommend it, (laughs) plus nobody knew who it was.
7: Did your husband read your books?
11: No, he's still living. He's in his late 80s, but he confessed to me about three or four months ago that he had read only one of them. And that was the first one, Odd Girl Out, and he didn't read it until decades after it had been published and republished by many different publishers. He did, on the other hand, read a few pages when I was writing it. It made him very nervous, but I won an Oscar for being a nice young housewife and mom, and that reassured him. I was very conventional outwardly. And he found it difficult to talk about, he didn't want to believe it, he assumed that I was just jumping on the same bandwagon with a few other women who were writing original pulp paperbacks at the time, and it was very successful, and when my royalty checks began to come in, he cheered up demonstrably. So how did it all start, how did
7: you become a writer?
11: I always wrote, and I think providentially at that time, I found on the bookstore shelves a paperback reprint of uh, Radcliffe Hall's novel, The Well of Loneliness, which I found riveting and infuriating because it went from one gloomy crisis to the next, but at least it was a lesbian story and a very interesting one. And practically right next to it on the drugstore shelf was the first lesbian pulp original by an author named Vin Packer, and the book was called Spring Fire. And it was a college romance between two young women who were sorority sisters. And I thought, oh, eureka! I just got out of college, I was in a sorority, I know about this too. So I sat down with my husband's old Remington portable at the dining room table, and I started telling the story as cautiously as I could. I ended up with almost 600 pages, mostly about a handsome young fellow who meets one of the two girls in the story, and they end up getting married and going off hand in hand. In the meantime, I wrote to the author of Spring Fire and said rather portentously. I, too, have written a novel, and I don't know why she didn't throw my letter in the wastebasket at that very moment, but she got kind of intrigued, and she wrote back, and the upshot was she invited me to New York. I was living in Philadelphia, and she said, if you can get up here, I will introduce you to my editor, and you bring your manuscript, and we'll see what he thinks. Well, it took me a while to talk Ward Cleaver into letting this happen, and he finally caved when I told him that I had found an all-women's hotel and that I would stay in the all-women's hotel. (laughs) And he said, well, then that makes it okay, but you have to promise me you'll stay at the women's hotel. So I did, and I went up there. I met Vin Packer, who turned out to be a uh, remarkable woman still writing. Her real name is Mary Jane Meeker. She's written as Anne Aldrich and M.E. Kerr and various other names. Absolutely brilliant and very interesting. And she took me over to the gold medal books offices near Times Square and introduced me to Dick Carroll, who was the editor-in-chief, an old movie guy. He'd written film scripts, he'd been a film editor, and uh, they brought him into gold medal to see if he could handle the new original paperback section. So he read the book as a courtesy to Mary Jane in just a couple of days, and I went in to meet him with my knees knocking, and he said very kindly, you know, this is not a good book, but he saw something in it. And what he saw were the two sorority girls of my story, Beth and Laura, whom I had carefully shunted off to a shadowy corner. And he said, bring those girls center stage. They are your story. And uh, go home, rewrite the book. It should be half the length it is now. And tell the story of the two girls, which rocked me, because I thought I had been so subtle that nobody would pick up on the fact (laughs) that the girls were romantically interested in each other. So I went home. I cut the length of the book in half. I told the story of Beth and Laura and brought it back with some terribly proper title like Same Time, Same Place, which had nothing to do with anything. And within a week, I heard back from Dick Carroll. He said, we love it. We're going to publish it. The title of the book is now Odd Girl Out. Your your books are
7: often called the Bebo Brinker Chronicles. So who was Bebo Brinker?
11: Bebo was my fantasy butch, and I kind of dreamed her up based in part on a sorority sister who had the look, but not the emotional engagement. But she was a, a beautiful gal, very tall, actually a honey blonde, where Bebo has darker hair. But I took off from that, and I was trying to think who she would be, how she would be, if only i could meet her walking around a corner in greenwich village and i was struggling with this i knew she would look like a blend of ingrid bergman and johnny weissmuller i mean she was going to be this otherworldly wonderful fantasy buccaneering young butch and i couldn't quite nail her down until i remembered a name from my childhood one of my classmates couldn't pronounce her name as a little girl. And it was Beverly, and she came up with Bebo, and I thought, my God, that's it, Bebo. And the name Brinker came to me, and then suddenly I had her whole and entire, as they say. And although I never met the real Bebo, I have met women that came pretty close, (laughs) that all was kind of Grabbed me by the heartstrings. So I started with that. She was quite a heller, and she had a lot to rebel against in those times. But she would take jobs that uh, um, permitted her to wear pants. Um, She bravely and foolishly uh, looked butch. And of course, those were the days when you had to choose, are you butch or are you femme? And there's a wonderful story about that that Robin Tyler tells when she was very young and naive, and she came out to some lesbian friends, and they said, well, which are you, butch or femme? She said, well, what's the difference? And they said, well, you know, the femme does the dishes, and she does the dusting and vacuuming. And Robin said, I'm a butch. (laughs) So uh, Bebo was just born butch, farm kid from Wisconsin, and... Big, handsome girl, and she had to learn to be as self-assured and sophisticated as she looked, and she did learn that.
7: What was the gay lesbian scene in the village like in the 50s?
11: It really was kind of a magical place. I've described it as Dorothy landing in Munchkinland and opening the door, and everything suddenly in technicolor, beautiful, fun and amazing. To be able to walk down a street in Greenwich Village and see two guys or two gals holding hands, everyone being perfectly friendly, Nobody shocked, nobody remonstrating with you for doing that. It was a charming and a charmed place. It wasn't the only place in the world where wonderful things were happening. I know Los Angeles had a lively community and they were very active politically, with the Mattachine Society. San Francisco was developing the Daughters of Belitis with uh, Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin. Some scholarly works were coming out. Even Dr. Kinsey took an interest in all this and uh, published, I think in 1954, his, his book about the sex life of the human female which was occasion for rejoicing and opening of champagne bottles in some quarters. But the village itself truly was a sort of mecca for young gay and lesbian people. I was thrilled to have been there. And then, because my life took me so far away, it was another 45, 46 years before I was able to get back. And uh, it's still seductive. It's still charming but now it looks quite sleek and prosperous. And when I was there in the 50s and early 60s, it looked a little shabby and down at heel, but I don't think any of us minded. It was just so much fun and so validating to be with people who were perfectly bright, sensible people, but who happened to be LGBT people. And they were also the wittiest and the most creative and the most fun to talk to and to tangle with. So I met a lot of people who, some of whom I remember clearly, many of whom I remember fuzzily, but all of whom I remember fondly.
7: <laughs> You've written all these love stories that have been read by millions of people. Do you ever find your Bebo?
11: I came close a time or two. Some wonderful women have passed in and out of my life. I'm not partnered now. But it's okay. I am buried in grandchildren, grand doggies, lots of people in my life, and lots of writing still to do. But, you know, you never give up.
7: <laughs> Any regrets?
11: One thing I can say I kind of regret is that I didn't realize how seriously they were taken and how much they were needed, the, the old books. Women now say they hid them behind the fridge or under the mattress or in a shoebox in the closet, and they were their treasures. They did live in fear that a parent or an older sibling would find them and they'd be in big trouble, and it did happen to a few of them. But some of them have cherished those books for, it's now over half a century. It was 1957 when Odd Girl Out was published, and how life-affirming they were for most of them. And the other side of that is, I suppose if I had known when I was writing that I was doing something that would be remembered for so many years, it might have paralyzed me.
7: I've been talking to iconic lesbian pulp author Ann Bannon. For more information, you can visit her personal website at annbannon.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
9: Once I had a secret love that lived within the
2: heart of me. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, because we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted on kpfk.org, even during our hiatus from the -the over-the-air schedule during fun drives. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, cast box and pocket casts good night
9: my mama told me when i was young we we're all on superstars she rolled my hair put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir
11: there's nothing wrong with loving who
9: you are she said cause he made you perfect babe so hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say, no matter get straight or bi, lesbian, transgender life, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to survive. No matter black, white, or shoulder, or real I'm on the right track. Trap, baby, I was born to be brave. How beautiful am I? Cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right trap, baby, I was born this way. Don't add yourself and regret, just love yourself. And you said, I'm on the right trap, baby, I was born this way.
4: Don't be a drag, just be a queen. Don't be a drag,
9: just be a queen. Don't be a drag, just be a queen. Don't be. Give yourself prudence and love your friends So we can rejoice the truth In the religion of the insecure I must be myself, respect my youth A different lover is not a sin Believe, capital H, I am I love my life, I love this real good and me i y vale yeah. No matter getting straight or by, lesbian, transgender life, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born to survive. No matter black, white, baby, shoulder, or orientate, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born to be brave. I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself and regret, just love yourself and you said, I'm on the right track. Baby, I was born this way Don't be a drag, just be a queen Whether you're broke or evergreen your black, white, bass, chola, descent your Lebanese, Lebanese. your are Whether life's disabilities Left you outcast, leader or tease Rejoice and love yourself today Cause baby, you were born No matter get straight or bi Let's be a transgender life I'm on the right track, baby I was born to survive No matter black, white, bass, chola Or Orient, made, I'm on the right track, baby I was born to be how beautiful am my way, cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself and regret, just love yourself and you said I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way Oh, there ain't no other way, baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way Oh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Right track, baby, I was born this way. Oh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Baby, I was born this way. Oh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Right track, baby, I was born this way.